We're going to be learning in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi, the fifth piece in Helchos Trumos. This is Perek Ches Halacha Dalid. And even though this piece is in Helchos Trumos, it really just uses it as a jumping point to get involved in a different issue, which is with regard to Yerusha inheritance. How do we view the status of an ubar, a fetus, with regards to inheritance? So Rabbi Chaim's going to come up with a very novel concept that there's such a thing as an heir who does not have rights to the money. And we'll see how he develops that. So conceptually, this piece it really belongs in the laws of inheritance, but the halacha it's based on is in Hilchos Trumos. The case the Rambam's dealing with is a bit complicated. A Kohen dies and he has slaves. So the question is whether the slaves are able to eat truma because their master was a Kohen. Now, in this case, the Kohen left his wife, who's a Bas Yisrael, so she does not have any rights to truma, but she is pregnant with a fetus, and that fetus is going to be born as a Kohen. So the specific question is that when this fetus is born, he's going to own the slaves and he's going to be a Kohen. So certainly they're going to be able to eat truma at that point. But what about before he's born? So the Rambam says, that the slaves cannot eat truma because they belong to the fetus. And the principle here is, only a Kohen who's born is able to feed truma to his slaves, but a fetus who's unborn is not able to give truma to his slaves. Now, the Rambam adds in another case. If the fetus is a halal, an ineligible Kohen, so let's say the parents were prohibited from getting married. So in this more complicated case where the fetus is a halal, then the Rambam says, Then the halal would not invalidate the slaves from eating truma. So they are able to eat truma during her pregnancy, so long as there are other brothers who are kosher, valid kohanim. So let's say there was another wife who was allowed to marry the father. So because there are other heirs who are valid kohanim, the slaves belong to them and they are able to eat truma. And we don't worry about the fact that when this halal is born, they're no longer going to be able to eat truma because he is going to have some ownership of them and he is not able to feed his slaves truma. So basically, the Rambam tells us two cases, but there's really three cases. Case number one is when there's a valid fetus who's going to be a kosher Kohen when he's born. So at that point, his slaves will be able to eat truma, but right now he's a fetus. And if he has no brothers... So then the slaves cannot eat truma, and the reasoning for that is that fetuses do not feed their slaves truma. Case number two is where the fetus is kosher and the brothers are kosher. That the Rambam did not tell us what he rules in that case. And then case number three is where the fetus is a halal, but the brothers are kosher. And there the Rambam says that the slaves could eat truma until he's born, because so long as he's a fetus, he does not invalidate them eating truma. Once he's born, then he's an invalid Kohen who owns part of these slaves, and then they would have to stop eating truma. That's the Rambam. Now, the Ravid disagrees, and he has three steps to his disagreement. First of all, he focuses on the word lefichach that the Rambam said, because... The Rambam seemed to indicate that the two halachas he mentioned are dependent on each other. So because a fetus is not able to feed truma to his slaves, therefore, when there are other brothers who are kosher, the slaves can continue eating. And the Ravid does not understand why those are related. 
one could say that even though the fetus is not able to feed his slaves truma, but he still stops them from eating truma. There's no reason to say that just because he can't feed them truma, therefore he doesn't stop them from eating truma too. So the Ravid questions the whole premise of the Rambam that connects these two halachas together. And then he adds step two, that not only is this a possibility that maybe the fetus will stop them from eating, but he says that even makes sense because there's a debate in the Gemara, but we hold ubar isle zechia, that one can give ownership to a fetus, and especially in the case of a father giving his son the fetus a gift, because a father wants to give his son gift, so he'll give it even though this child hasn't been born. And even more so, the Ravid adds with regard to an inheritance because that's not even a gift. That's something which automatically comes to the son. So certainly a child who's a fetus can take ownership of the inheritance that they're going to get from their father. So in that case, the Ravid argues that when you have a fetus, he does have ownership over his father's slaves as soon as the father dies. And coming back to the case of the Rambam, if the fetus is a halal and there are other kosher brothers, the Ravid says that the slaves should not be able to eat even though this child hasn't been born yet because he does have an ownership stake in the slaves and because he's a halal, they're not able to eat truma. So the Ravid argues practically on the Rambam's ruling that in that case, the slaves could eat truma and he argues that because of the fetus's ownership, they cannot eat truma even before he's born. So that's the practical debate between the Rambam and the Ravid in the case of a halal fetus who has kosher brothers are the slaves able to eat during her pregnancy or not? Now, Reb Chaim points out that the Rambam does not disagree with the Ravid's assertion that a fetus can have an ownership stake. Because in the first case where there's only a fetus, the Rambam said that the slaves cannot eat truma, not because the fetus doesn't own them, but because fetuses do not feed truma to their slaves. So that indicates that he does own them, he's just not able to give them truma. So if so, Rab Chaim says that the Ravid's question on the Rambam, why did he connect these two halachas, is a very powerful one. Because why does it follow from the fact that a fetus cannot feed his slaves truma, that if there are other brothers, then they could eat truma? In fact, it seems the opposite, that since the fetus does have ownership of the slaves and he's not able to feed them truma, so it seems like they cannot eat truma during the pregnancy. And the Rambam says precisely the opposite, that because the fetus can't feed them truma, therefore, if there are other brothers, they could eat truma during the pregnancy. So this is a very difficult question. And Rab Chaim says, if we would interpret the Rambam as saying that the fetus has no ownership over the slaves at all, so he disagrees with the Ravid's assertion on that point, then it would make sense because the Rambam is saying that fetuses have no ownership during the pregnancy. But as Rab Chaim just said, that's not the case. A careful reading of the Rambam indicates that he agrees that the fetus has some ownership here. Just the fetus is unable to feed truma during the pregnancy. So in that case, it seems that even if there are other brothers, the slaves should not be able to eat truma 
opposite of what the Rambam said. So first, Rab Chaim tries to explain what exactly is the operative principle in this Rambam. Because in the first case, the Rambam said that if there's only a fetus, then the slaves can't eat because fetuses can't give truma to their slaves. And then in the second case, he said if there's other brothers, then they could all eat because the fetus is not going to withhold truma from the slaves. So it's not clear exactly what's going on here. So Rab Chaim says the obvious point, and he admits this is obvious, that the first case seems to be where there are no other brothers. So this is the first child being born to the father. So because there are no other heirs who are able to feed truma to the slaves, it all depends on the fetus and fetuses cannot feed truma. Therefore, the slaves cannot eat truma. But in the second case, as the Rambam explicitly says, there are other brothers who are kosher kohanim. So the slaves are able to eat truma because of the other heirs. They don't rely on the fetus. That's why they're able to eat it so long as the fetus is not born and he doesn't have a full ownership stake in the slaves. But Rab Chaim points out that there's a major problem with this formulation of the principle. Because if we say that Ubar a fetus has ownership, so then even where there's other brothers, the slaves should not be able to eat because the fetus has an equal inheritance stake to the other brothers. They're all sons, so they all have the same inheritance rights. And because the fetus is a halal, so he should immediately invalidate the slaves from being able to eat truma because of his portion in ownership of the slaves. And the flip side, if the fetus does not have an ownership right until he's born, so then even in the first case where there are no other brothers, only the fetus is the first son being born, still the slaves should be able to eat because of the other inheritor. So whoever is the standing inheritor at that moment, whatever cousin it is, if it's a fifth cousin or a tenth cousin, it doesn't matter. But so long as there's another Kohen in the world who stands to inherit this in the absence of the son, so the slaves should be able to eat because of his portion in them. Meaning because the fetus has not taken ownership of his father's estate yet, so the other heirs, whoever they are, who are Kohanim, are going to be able to feed the slaves. So either way, there's a significant problem, either with the first case of the Rambam or with the second case of the Rambam, depending on whether we say that a fetus has ownership or not. So Rab Chaim develops a very creative, innovative idea in order to explain this Rambam. And that is he suggests that a fetus has a sort of middle standing with regards to being an heir. He's not a full heir because he does not actually have ownership of the financial components of this. He says, A fetus is not able to acquire objects and own them. That's obvious because he's a fetus. So with regard to the actual ownership of the inheritance, the fetus is not able to command that status. But with regards to the inherent halacha and the status of being an heir, of taking over as a yoresh, so there there's nothing that precludes the ubar from being a bar yerusha, from being an heir. The fetus and the born child are equal when it comes to the concept of Yerusha. So Rab Chaim is making a distinction between being an heir versus actually taking ownership of the money. And he's going to develop this because this is unusual. Usually we think of an heir as the person who has ownership of the money. There is no status of ownership, which is distinct from owning the money. But that's Rab Chaim's idea, and he applies it to a fetus 
who he suggests is an heir without actually taking ownership of the money. So the concept of inheritance that a fetus has just means that when he's born, then he is going to come into the money. That's all it means when we say that a fetus is currently a Yoresh. So now this is going to explain the distinction that the Rambam makes very nicely because in the first case where there are no other brothers, there are other relatives, but since the fetus has the status of a Yoresh, so he knocks out the other relatives. They have no standing in this case because son is the highest level of heir. So as soon as there's a fetus in the picture, the lower levels of heirs, whether they're fathers or brothers or cousins or whoever they are, they get knocked out. And it all depends on the fetus. And since fetuses don't feed their slaves truma, therefore in that case, the slaves cannot eat truma. And we don't care in that case whether the fetus actually has financial ownership of the slaves because since his status as a Yoresh is higher than anyone else's, so he immediately removes the other Yorshim from the case and it all depends on him. But in the second case where there are other brothers, so they're equal Yorshim to this fetus, so in that case, Rab Chaim says all of the brothers, including the fetus, have equal Yerusha rights. They all have the status of heirs with regards to these slaves. And then it depends on who actually has ownership financially of them. So any brothers who are born, they all share the ownership together and they preclude any one brother from taking over the whole thing. But a fetus who does not have actual financial ownership, so he would not affect the other brother's ownership stake in these slaves, even though they're all heirs, but the status becomes less important when they're all equal heirs. And what really matters is who actually owns it. And since the Ubar does not have practical ownership of it, so his status would not affect these slaves and therefore they can continue eating truma the entire pregnancy until he's born. So this explains very nicely the distinction in the Rambam that when the fetus has no other brothers, then the slaves cannot eat at all because he is the heir. And even though there's other relatives in the world who are Kohanim who would have been able to feed them truma, but because he's the only son, so he has a higher level of inheritance, therefore it's irrelevant to this case what other heirs are out there. It all depends on the fetus and a fetus cannot feed his slaves truma. So in the case where there's no other sons, it all depends on who has the status of an heir. But when there's other sons, so there's a bunch of heirs in this case, so then it becomes dependent on who actually has ownership of the slaves. And in that case, the fetus has no standing. So he's irrelevant to whether or not the slaves can eat. And even if he's a halal, so when he's born, they're not going to be able to eat at all because he's invalid from having truma. But still, before he's born, he does not affect his brother's ownership of the slaves and the slaves can eat truma. And then Rab Chaim adds at the end of the third paragraph that you could even formulate this a little differently. You don't have to say it so sharply that when there is a fetus, the other relatives are irrelevant. They have no standing. You could even say that they do have standing because they are born and the fetus is not born yet. So they do have standing as the living heirs of this Kohen who died. And again, the fetus does not practically own any part of the estate. So the other relatives are the ones who practically own it right now. But still, says Rab Chaim, they cannot feed the slaves truma 
because this fetus, when he's born, is going to knock out all of their inheritance status. So because he is eventually going to take over the entire estate, even right now while he's a fetus and he's incapable of taking ownership of it, but he still precludes the slaves from eating truma. As opposed to when there are other brothers where he's never going to totally displace his other brothers, he's going to join them as an equal heir, but he's not going to ever displace them, so that's why they're able to feed the slaves truma right now before he's born. So basically, Rab Chaim has two ways to formulate the relationship of the fetus to the other non-son's relatives who are heirs. Number one is that because he's the son, the other relatives are not considered to be heirs in any sense of the word because he is the sole heir, even though he's not born yet. And the second formulation is that until he's born, he does not actually have ownership of the money. So the other relatives do have ownership and status in this case. But because the fetus, when he is born, is going to totally displace them, so that affects the situation right now, and they're unable to feed the slaves truma. So this all resolves the second question of the Raivid on the Rambam, which was why can the slaves eat truma when there's a fetus who's a halal? So Rab Chaim's resolved that. Now Rab Chaim turns to the Ravid's first question on the Rambam, which was on the Lefichach. The Rambam indicated that the two halachas are related to each other. They follow one from the other. And the Ravid questioned why that should be the case, because even though a fetus does not feed the slaves truma, why does it follow that he doesn't block them from eating truma either? Maybe the same way he doesn't feed them truma, he also blocks them from eating because of his ownership portion. And in fact, that seems to be logical that because he's unable to feed them, they're not allowed to eat truma because he does have an ownership stake in them. And Rab Chaim even adds that it's not a matter of the fetus invalidating the slaves from eating truma. You don't need a reason why the slaves are unable to eat truma. The mere fact that the fetus has an ownership stake and cannot feed them truma as part of his ownership means that a part of the slaves are not allowed to eat truma and therefore they should be forbidden to eat the truma. So Rab Chaim says that based on his theory, we can answer this question too. His theory was that a fetus is a partial heir. He does have the status of a yoresh, but he does not have an actual financial ownership until he's born. So now Rab Chaim introduces the key point which is going to resolve this Rambam, which is that Truma has a different criteria than other cases of financial ownership. Because the Torah says that a Kohen can feed his slaves Truma if they're Kenyan Kaspo, if he owns them. So the issue in this Rambam is going to center on whether a fetus with his partial ownership is considered Kenyan Kaspo or it doesn't meet the criteria of Kenyan Kaspo. And now Rab Chaim goes through this, how this question is going to impact both halachas. And he creates, so to speak, almost the Rambam's internal dialogue about this halacha. Obviously, this is not in the Rambam himself, but Rab Chaim is recreating the context that led to these halachas in the Rambam. So at first the Rambam assumes that when the Gemara says that a fetus cannot 
feed his slaves truma, it means that it does meet the bar for Kenyan Kaspo. But there's another halacha, which is that a Kohen has to be born in order to feed his slaves truma. So the fetus is ineligible to feed his slaves truma, not because they're not Kenyan Kaspo, but because he's not born yet. And that's a prerequisite for giving the slaves truma. Now, based on that, says the Rambam, if the slaves are considered Kenyan Kaspo of the fetus, so then it would follow that if there are other brothers in the situation, even if the fetus is a halal, the slaves can continue eating the truma because they are able to eat based on the halal fetus's ownership. One of the problems that Rab Chaim raised was that if the fetus can't feed the slaves truma, then you don't even need a reason why they can't eat. The very fact that he can't feed them means that they're not allowed to eat truma because of his ownership portion. So the solution to that now is that even though if there's no other brothers, only this fetus, they're not able to eat truma because of the technical problem that he's not born yet. But in a case when there are other brothers, so they resolve the problem that the fetus isn't born because they are born. And in addition, the fetus does have Kenyan Caspo ownership of the slaves. So they're able to eat even because of the portion of ownership of the fetus. So that resolves all the problems. And therefore, says the Rambam, the fetus wouldn't block the slaves from eating. And again, that's directly related to the first halacha, that a fetus doesn't feed his slaves in truma. And the connection is that since in the first halacha, the fetus doesn't feed his slaves only because of a technicality, but the indication is that they are Kenyan Kaspo, so that leads directly to the second halacha, that if there are other brothers, the slaves would be able to continue eating truma until the fetus is born. So that's the first way to formulate the connection between these two halachas in the Rambam. But now Rab Chaim goes in the total opposite direction, as he often does, and he asks a question, which is that even though the fetus has Kenyan Kaspo ownership in the slaves, but he is considered a czar. He doesn't have the status of a Kohen, because since he's a halal, when he's born, he's not going to be a Kohen. He's going to be an invalid Kohen, which gives him the halachas of a regular Yisrael. So how could the slaves be eating truma when part of their ownership is a Kenyan Kaspo of a Yisrael? They're not totally owned by Kohanim. So even in the case where there's other brothers, the fact that there is a fetus with the status of a Yisrael should block the slaves from being able to eat. So Rab Chaim says that in fact, it's really the opposite going on over here. The Rambam understands that when the Gemara said that a fetus cannot feed his slaves truma, it's not a technicality that he needs to be born in order to feed them truma. It's getting at the actual halacha of Kenyan Kaspo, and it's saying that a fetus does not meet the bar of Kenyan Kaspo. The slaves of a fetus are excluded from the Torah's definition of Kenyan Kaspo. So once they're not included in Kenyan Kaspo, that's why the fetus cannot feed his slaves truma. And that's the explanation of the Rambam's first halacha. That the fetus doesn't feed his slaves truma indicates that they are not Kenyan Kaspo. And of course,
course, that leads directly to the next halacha, that if there are other brothers, then the fetus doesn't block the slaves from eating truma because they're not Kenyan Kaspo. So he's not a relevant player in this situation. Even though it's true that a fetus does have some inheritance rights, he has the status of a Yoresh, but that's irrelevant when it comes to Truma, because in Truma everything depends on Kenyan Kaspo, and the fetus does not meet the bar for Kenyan Kaspo, which requires actual financial ownership, not just a future right to ownership. So therefore in Truma the fetus is irrelevant, and the slaves can continue eating because of the other brothers. So this very beautifully explains why the Rambam connects these two halachas, and the Lefichach makes perfect sense, because the Rambam is addressing the core issue of whether a fetus has any relevance in determining the Kenyan Kaspo criteria of Truma. And once he sees that a fetus is irrelevant, so therefore both halachas follow, one is that the fetus alone cannot feed his slaves, and the second is that there, if there are other brothers, then the fetus won't affect the equation. Now, the Ravid who asked his question was applying the general rule of fetuses to the concept of truma, and he's arguing that since a fetus has some ownership stake, he should block the slaves from eating because he's a halal. But the Rambam's response, according to Rab Chaim, is to understand that there's a core difference between truma and other financial cases, that even though the fetus is a quasi-owner, meaning he has the status of a yoresh to inherit in the future, but that's only relevant to other financial cases. When it comes to truma, it depends on this Kenyan Caspo criteria, and in that the fetus is totally irrelevant. So that's Rab Chaim's explanation of the Rambam. Now, in the fifth paragraph, Rab Chaim turns to a slightly tangential discussion, and he addresses the whole concept that a fetus is a partial owner, meaning he's an heir, but he doesn't actually have financial ownership. And Rab Chaim wonders, could that be? Is there such a thing as a Yoresh who doesn't actually financially own the estate? So he brings a proof to this from the Rambam in Hilchus Nachus, Parakalaf Gimel. The Rambam is discussing a case where a mother and a son died on the same day. And the question in terms of Yerusha is who died first? Because it's going to depend who's going to inherit the estate, the mother's heirs or the son's heirs. So the Rambam has a case where a mother died, and then the son, so he outlived her by a little bit. Even though he's a newborn, and he's a preemie, so he wasn't going to live, so the mother died in childbirth, and then a short time later, her newborn preemie baby died. Still, the Rambam says that that baby is going to inherit the mother's estate and pass it along to his father's side of the family, meaning to his Yarshim. And the Ravid argues, and he says, It's not in that case. It's only talking about where the child was a full nine-month-old baby. So it had the ability to live, even though the baby didn't, but it did have the ability to survive. That kind of baby would inherit. But a preemie baby who was not going to live would not be able to inherit his mother's estate. So Rab Chaim says that there's two ways to understand the Ravid's critique of the Rambam. Option number one is that he holds that a preemie who's not going to live is not included at all in the concept of Yerusha. He does not have the status of a Yoresh. 
Option number two is a bit more limited, that the Rivet holds that in general, even a preemie baby would be considered an heir, and he would even be able to pass along his mother's estate to his own Yarshim. But when it comes to transferring the mother's estate from her family to his father's side, so there, there's a bit of a higher criteria, which is that the son in the middle has to actually assume ownership of the estate. If he doesn't assume ownership, then he can't transfer it from the mother's side to his father's side. So that's why a preemie won't be able to do that because according to the Raivid, obviously he never comes into ownership of this estate. So those are two ways to understand the Raivid. Either it's a broader critique of the Rambam's notion that a preemie could be a Yoresh, or it's a more limited critique with regard to transferring from the mother's side to the father's side. But either way, the main thing here is the explanation of the Rambam's view, because the Rambam holds that in such a case, the preemie baby does transfer the property from the mother's side to the father's side. And the explanation is because the baby outlived the mother even by a little bit, so the property goes to him, and from him it goes to his halachic heir, which are on his father's side. But Rab Chaim points out that obviously, according to the Rambam, a non-viable preemie never takes financial ownership of the estate. Not just because physically he can't do it, but because halachically he doesn't have the status of a living person who can have financial ownership. So even when the non-viable preemie is alive, there's no concept of him actually owning the estate. So when the Rambam says that he's an heir to transfer the property to his father's side, it means even though he never actually took ownership or was capable of taking ownership of this estate. And still, according to the Rambam, the estate is his enough that it then goes from the mother's side to the father's side. So Rab Chaim says that this shows clearly in the Rambam that there is a distinction between a status of a Yoresh versus someone who actually takes ownership of the property. Not every Yoresh necessarily has actual monetary ownership in the property, as in the case of the non-viable preemie. And the same would be true in the case of the fetus, that he could be considered a Yoresh even though he does not actually have any ownership in the property. So this would defend Rab Chaim's whole approach and his explanation to the Rambam. And again, the Ravid might not disagree with this point. Rab Chaim will come back at the end of this piece to explain the Ravid. But as he indicated in this paragraph, the Ravid might also agree that there is a distinction between actual ownership versus being a Yoresh. Now Rab Chaim turns to apply the Rambam's approach back into the Gemaras. And he points out that the Rambam's distinction between whether there are other sons who have already been born versus if there's no sons, there's just other relatives, goes totally against the Gemara in Yevamos and Daf Samach Zayin. The Mishnah there quotes from Rabbi Yossi, the basic halacha, that if a Bas Yisrael, so the mother comes from the Yisrael family, the father was a Kohen and then he died and she was pregnant with a fetus. So the slaves cannot eat truma based on the rationale that in Ubar's postal they know machil, the fetus does not feed his slaves in truma. And that was the basic halacha as the Rambam quoted it. But the Gemara quotes from Amr Avidar Shmuel that this is only the minority opinion of Rabbi Yossi, but the Chachamim, the majority, disagree with Rabbi Yossi, and they hold that if there is a fetus, the slaves could eat truma, either because there are other sons who have already been born, so the slaves can eat because of those sons, 
or if there's no sons, then there's brothers, meaning the father who died has brothers, or if he doesn't have brothers, then there's some other relative on his side, who's a Kohen, who is his Yoresh. So because of these other relatives, the slaves can continue eating truma even before this fetus is born. So the Chachamim introduced the concept that we mentioned before, that so long as there's another relative in the world who stands to inherit this Kohen, that person would allow the slaves to continue eating truma even while this baby is a fetus. So the Gemara is very clear that there's two extreme opinions over here. There's Rabbi Yossi who holds that while there's a fetus, the slaves cannot eat at all, even if there are other sons who are already born, because Ubar Yeshlo the fetus, does have rights, so he blocks the slaves from eating until he's born. And the Chachamim disagree, they have the opposite opinion, that the fetus never blocks the slaves from eating truma, even if there are no other sons, because there's uncles or other relatives, because the Chachamim hold that Ubar ain lo a fetus has no rights, so until he's born, he doesn't block even a fifth cousin from taking ownership of the slaves and feeding them truma. But there's no position in the middle which differentiates like the Rambam between whether there are other sons versus if there are no other sons. So the Rambam's theoretical distinction makes a lot of sense because if there's other sons, then this fetus is never going to knock them out. But if there's no other sons, just other relatives, then the fetus is eventually going to knock out those relatives, Yerusha. That makes a lot of sense, but it goes against the Gemara, which makes no such distinction and just has two extreme opinions about whether the fetus blocks the slaves from eating truma or not. And later on, the Gemara even makes clear that this distinction can't be because it quotes the opinion of Rab Shimon Bar Yochai that if there are sons, then the slaves can continue eating truma. But if there are daughters, so this fetus only has sisters, then they cannot eat truma because the fetus might turn out to be a boy and then he would knock out the inheritance of the daughters and it would turn out that the slaves should not have been eating truma the entire pregnancy. So the Gemara asks, why is Reb Shimon Bar Yochai focusing on whether the fetus turns out to be a boy with the implication being that if it turns out to be a girl, then it was okay that the slaves ate truma throughout the pregnancy? Because we just said that according to Rabbi Yossi, any fetus would block the slaves from eating truma, even if he's the same status Yoresh as the already born sibling. So a boy amongst other brothers or a girl amongst other sisters, it doesn't matter because the very fact that there's a fetus means that they cannot eat truma because of the portion that the fetus owns. And that portion, the fetus, he or she cannot feed them truma. And obviously Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai doesn't hold like the Chachamim because then he wouldn't care about fetuses at all. So the Gemara answers that that's correct. In fact, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai does not make a distinction between whether the fetus turns out to be a boy or a girl. It's irrelevant. In both cases, it would be prohibited for the slaves to keep eating truma during the pregnancy if there are only daughters. In other words, if the Kohen who died had only had daughters prior to this pregnancy. So the Gemara asks, but that still implies that if there are sons who have already been born, then the slaves could continue eating truma because of these other sons. So the Gemara answers that yes, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai does distinguish between 
if there are sons or daughters who have been born. And this is based on a new concept of Ein Choshesh Miyuta, which is based on the idea that only a minority of babies are healthy boys because half of all babies are girls and then some babies don't make it. So there's a less than 50% chance of having a healthy baby boy. So that's why Reb Shimon Ben Yochai holds that if there are sons who have already been born and they can feed the slaves truma, then ain't choshesh in miyuta. We're not concerned that this fetus is going to be a healthy baby boy and the slaves can continue eating throughout the pregnancy. But if there are only daughters, so it's problematic whether the fetus turns out to be a boy or a girl. So there's no miyut. So in that case, the slaves have to stop eating during the pregnancy. But Rab Chaim points out that this whole discussion flies in the face of the Rambam's distinction. Because the Gemara is very clearly saying that there is no theoretical distinction between whether there are sons who have already been born versus any other relatives. The only difference is the Choshesh and the Miyuta concept. But the whole idea that Rab Chaim articulated in the Rambam that if it's brothers, then the fetus won't knock them out. But if it's other relatives, then the fetus will knock them out. The Gemara totally rejects that distinction and it doesn't bring it up at all. Otherwise, the question on Reb Shimon ben Yochai would be a non-starter. Of course, there's a difference between whether the Kohen's earlier children are boys or girls. Boys won't get knocked out by a male fetus and girls will. So the Gemara seems to clearly indicate that the Rambam's distinction is a non-starter. So Rab Chaim explains that the Rambam's position emerges from a different Gemara in Nida and Dafmem Dalid. The case there is the opposite of the one we've been discussing. The wife comes from a family of Kohanim and the husband does not. So if the husband dies and there's no children, then the wife could go back to eating truma because of her father. But if there are children, and the Mishnah says even a baby who's one day old, then she can no longer eat truma. So the Gemara asks, why do you have to say that there's a baby who's one day old, even if there's a fetus, she can't eat truma? So Rav Sheshis answers that we're talking about a whole different case. It's talking about a Kohen who has two wives. One was previously divorced, so he was prohibited to marry her. And the other one was not divorced, so he was allowed to marry her. And he already has children from that one. So they're kosher, valid Kohanim. And then he has a one-day-old baby with the divorced wife. So this is a halal. And the Mishnah holds that as soon as that baby is born, then the slaves can no longer eat truma. But when that baby's only a fetus, then the slaves could eat truma. So this is exactly the Rambam's case that there are other brothers and there's a fetus who's a halal. And the Mishnah in Nida rules that during the pregnancy, the slaves could continue to eat truma. And the way the Gemara formulates this, it's la fuke midrabiosi, this goes against Rabbi Yossi's opinion that while there's a fetus, the slaves are not allowed to eat truma. The Mishnah in Nida disagrees and holds that so long as there are other brothers, even if the fetus is a halal, the slaves can eat truma until he's born. Now, Tosas asks a very powerful question, which is why does Rav Sheshas need to say a complicated case where there were two wives and one was previously divorced? Why not just say a much simpler case 
that there were no previous sons, there's no other wife, there was only one wife who was previously divorced, and now she's pregnant with a fetus who's a halal. And as we know from the Gemara and Yevamos, according to the Chachamim, the slaves could continue to eat truma until that baby is born, because a fetus does not affect the slaves at all. So why is Rav Shesha saying a whole complicated case when he could say a much simpler case and say that this Mishnah in Nida is the exact position of the Chachamim in the Gemara in Yevamos and they disagree with Rabbi Yossi. So why not keep things simpler? Says Tosvos that Rav Shesha's in the Gemara in Nida holds not like the original reading of the Machlokas between the Chachamim and Rabbi Yossi in Yevamos, meaning the way Rabbi Yudam or Shmuel said it, but he holds of the later version of the Machlokas, the way the Gemara explained the Machlokas between Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. That Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai does not hold that the fetus is irrelevant, he just holds that Ein Choshish in the Meaning he fundamentally agrees with Rabbi Yossi that a fetus should block the slaves from eating, but in a case where there are already other sons, since there's only a minority chance that this fetus is going to be a healthy boy, therefore in Choshish and Lemiuta, we're not concerned with it. But Rab Shimon Bar Yochai basically agrees with the position of Rabbi Yossi that a fetus is relevant and does have rights in this situation. So because Rab Sheshas sees the Machlokas that way, he's not able to read the Mishnah as a sweeping halacha, that even if there's no other sons, still the slaves could continue eating truma. That's not true. It's only in this limited case where there are other sons who are already alive, they can continue feeding the slaves truma until this halal fetus is born. So the way Tosos makes sense of these two Gemaras, there are two ways to read the Machlokas between Rabbi Yossi and his opponent, and we end up with three different shitas. One way to read it is that there's a broad machlokas, whether ubar yesh lo or not, does the fetus have any rights? And then it doesn't matter if there's other brothers, if there's other sisters, if there's other relatives, it's totally irrelevant. One side holds that the fetus prevents the slaves from eating truma, and the other side holds that the fetus is irrelevant. The other way to read the machlokas, which is at the end of the Gemara Nyevamos and in the Gemara Nida, is that everyone agrees that the fetus has rights. The question is, do we need to be concerned that this fetus is going to be a healthy baby boy when there are other sons who have already been born? And Rabbi Yossi holds yes, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai holds not. So in Tosus's framework, we end up with three different opinions. One is that every fetus in all cases blocks the slaves from eating truma. The second is that fetuses block the slaves from eating truma in most cases with the exception of where there are already older sons who have been born to this father. And the third position is that we never care about the fetus and they never block the slaves from eating truma. But Rab Chaim points out that the Rambam disagrees with this setup of Tosos because in the Mishnah in Nida, in the Pirsha Mishnayis, the Rambam explains that the reason why the Mishnah holds that a fetus does not block the slaves from eating truma is because ain kinyan ubar, and ubar has no rights. So this totally undercuts Tosus's reading of the Gemara in Nida because Tosus said in Nida, Rav Sheshus agrees that the ubar has rights, but he holds ain choshish in lemiuta if there are already brothers who have been born. 
but the Rambam holds that the Uber has no right. So then the question comes back, why does Rav Shesha say a complicated case where there are older brothers who are already born? Why not just say a simple case where there's no other children, the woman is pregnant with a halal fetus, and the Mishnah still holds that the slaves are able to eat truma. So Rab Chaim says very brilliantly that because of this question, the Rambam held that you have to say that Rav Sheshes in the Gemara Nida disagrees with the view of Shmuel. Even though Shmuel made it a black and white machlokas between Rabbi Yossi and the Chachamim, whether in Ubar prevents the slaves from eating truma based on whether he has rights or not, in all cases, it doesn't matter whether there's older brothers or older sisters or other relatives or fifth cousins or whatever, it's all the same. According to Shmuel, according to the Chachamim, the slaves can continue eating truma in all cases, and according to Rabbi Yossi, they cannot eat truma in all cases. But Rav Sheshes has a different view of this. And he holds that there is a difference between whether there's older brothers or other relatives, even according to the Chachamim. So the Rambam read that according to the Gemara in Nida's version of the Chachamim, they hold that the slaves can only continue eating truma when there's a fetus, if there are older sons who are alive. But if there are other relatives, then they cannot eat truma once there's a fetus in the picture. And that's exactly the distinction that the Rambam made. So it comes out not from the Gemara in Yevamos, which contradicts that distinction, but it comes from the Gemara in Nida, which you're forced to say that, otherwise the Rambam has no answer to Tosus's question, why Rav Sheshas chose the complicated case over the simple case. And the explanation for the distinction is, as Rab Chaim already explained, that since the fetus is an heir without actual ownership, so once he's born, he's going to knock out other relatives, but he's not going to knock out his older brothers. So that's why the slaves can continue eating truma when there are older brothers in the situation. In other words, there's a fundamental methodological machlokas between Tosos and the Rambam versus how to make sense of this Gemara in Nida. The Gemara in Nida seems to contradict the Gemara in Yevamos. So Tosos says that the Gemara in Nida is not adding any additional conceptual material. It's just following another shita which was already mentioned in the Gemara in Yevamos. So it's not actually contradicting the Gemara in Yevamos. It's following a different approach which appeared in the Gemara in Yevamos. The Rambam, on the other hand, views this as a much more conceptual machlokas, and he sees in the Gemara Nida a whole new conceptual approach to this issue, which he then codifies in his halachas. And this is a fairly standard debate between the Rambam and Tosos. This is their general methodology that Tosos very often tries to harmonize between the Gemaras, even if he has to force things a little bit. Whereas the Rambam and Rashi also, they're more content to just say that the different Gemaras disagree with each other and they explain each Gemara separately. And that's one of the reasons, of course, why the Rambam is able to come up with all sorts of conceptual gems in his putting together of the Gemaras because he's less bound by trying to harmonize everything. And that's part of what Rab Chaim's attracted to in the Rambam's halachas, that ability to find more conceptual themes in the Gemara. So this is a perfect example of all that. The Rambam reads the Gemara in Nida as being in tension with the Gemara in Yevamos and giving a much more conceptual approach to this halacha, which he then codifies in his halachas. Now Reb Chaim introduces a third Gemara in Babastra Kufmem Beis, 
and he thinks that this Gemara is going to support his reading of the Rambam and support the Rambam's reading of the Gemara. Rav Sheshis holds that a fetus could acquire objects. So the Gemara asks from the Mishnah that says that a one-day-old baby can inherit and be inherited, but the implication is that only once the baby is born, not when it's a fetus. So Rav Sheshis answers that we're talking about taking the mother's possessions and transferring them over to the father. So in that case, the baby has to be one day old because if it's a fetus, then he died before his mother and it wouldn't go to his heirs, it would go to her heirs. So that's answer number one, why in the Mishnah it requires the baby to inherit and be inherited to at least be born, it can't be a fetus. Then the Gemara asks on that and it quotes another answer from Mar Bered Rav Yosef in the name of Rava that it's talking about how you equate the portion that the firstborn gets. He gets double the other brothers. But if this brother is one day old and then he dies, so then he is considered one of the brothers. So let's say there's three brothers. The firstborn would get a half as opposed to two-thirds. But if it was just a fetus when he died, then he would not cut into the firstborn's portion. So that's the second way that the Gemara explains why in that Mishnah specifically the baby has to be born and it can't be a fetus. But the implication is that even a fetus could do regular inheriting and have others inherit him. It's only for these special halachas that he needs to be born. He needs to be at least one day old. But Rab Chaim asks, how does this make any sense in Rav Sheshes himself? Because we just saw in the Gemara and Nida that Rav Sheshes learns the Mishnah that it's following the position of the Chachamim who hold that a fetus has no rights. That's why he doesn't block the slaves from eating truma. So how could you possibly say that that very same Mishnah holds that a fetus is able to inherit and be inherited? If the fetus has no rights and that's why the slaves can eat truma, then it would seem obvious that the fetus also can't be an heir. But says Rab Chaim that according to the approach that he's been developing, this makes perfect sense. Because he's been explaining that a fetus is a partial heir. He does have the status of a Yoresh, but he does not have actual ownership in the estate. So that makes perfect sense of both of these cases. It explains why according to Rav Sheshis, the way the Rambam reads him, even though the fetus is an heir, so that's why he can inherit and be inherited even as a fetus, still that doesn't block the slaves from eating truma, specifically in the case where there are other brothers. Because since he doesn't own the slaves right now, they're not Kenyan Kaspo, so they can continue eating the truma. And even when he's born, he's not going to knock the brothers out because they're all going to be equal status. But that's only in a case where there are other brothers. Where it's other Krovin, there's other relatives, but there are no other sons. So then in that case, as we know, the Rambam holds that the fetus's status as a Yoresh is going to knock out the other relatives who are already born. And that's exactly what Rav Sheshas disagrees with Shmuel about. So this is a phenomenal approach in understanding Rav Sheshis' reading of the Mishnah, which makes sense of the Gemara in Baba Basra, which adds in that even though the fetus doesn't block the slaves from eating truma, the fetus is a Yoresh. And that's exactly how Rab Chaim has been explaining the Rambam's reading of Rav Sheshis throughout. Now, Rab Chaim continues in the seventh paragraph to analyze the Rambam's reading of the Gemara in Baba Basra, and he believes that the Rambam's approach is going to answer 
another question. Tosfos in Nida makes the point that when Rava says in Baba Basra that a fetus doesn't cut in to the double portion of the firstborn, only a child who's already born minimizes the firstborn's double portion, not a fetus. So he bases that on a pasuk, which says viyoldulo, that only sons who are born cut into the firstborn's portion, not a fetus. So that implies that Rava holds that an Ubar does have rights, because if the Ubar has no rights, then you don't need a verse to teach you that he doesn't cut into the firstborn's portion. Of course he doesn't, he has no rights. So it must be that Rava holds that a fetus does have rights, but the Pusuk limits his rights and it makes an exception that he doesn't minimize the firstborn's portion. But this is very problematic because Rava himself says in the Gemara in Baba Basra that an Ubar cannot acquire anything, not only gifts that someone gives him, but even the father's inheritance, which would come automatically to him. So you see that Rava holds that a fetus has no rights. So why then does he need a pasuk to limit that the fetus doesn't cut into the firstborn's portion? That should be obvious on its own. And furthermore, the Rimegash, who has some comments on Baba Basra, he was a Rebbe of the Rambam. So the Rambam very often reads the sugya like the Rimegash. The Rimegash has a question that the Gemara in Baba Basra at the end says that we rule in all of the issues in that sugya like Rava. But it's the same problem because since we already said that according to Rava, the fetus has no rights, it should follow that he doesn't cut in to the firstborn's portion automatically. Why do we need a new halacha to say that? And this question appears in the Rambam's halachas because in Hilchus Mechira Chaf Beis Yud, the Rambam records the halacha of Rava that you cannot acquire anything to a fetus. And then in Zchiu Matana Beis Yudches, he quotes the halacha of a convert who dies. So if he has no heirs, then all his property becomes ownerless and anyone can take it. So the case is where there's a rumor that a convert died and Jews go and they grab his stuff. And then it turns out either that he didn't die or that he has a son or that his wife is pregnant. So he has a fetus. So either way, there's someone that's an heir. So they return all the property. And then it turns out that the first rumor was actually correct. Either he died or the Rambam lists two more cases. His son died before him or his wife had a miscarriage. So in that case, anyone can now grab the estate of the convert, but only from the second point and onwards, anyone who grabbed it before the matter was clarified has to return it. And the Gemara explains the basis of this halacha because rapuye marpe biadayu. It's not clear the first time when they take it that they can really take it, so they didn't really acquire it until the matter got clarified the second time around. Now, Rab Chaim points out a subtlety in the reading of this Rambam. There's a very fine distinction, if you read it carefully, between the case of the son who was born who died versus the miscarriage of the fetus. And that is, in the case of the son who was born, the Rambam specifies that he died before the father had died. Whereas in the miscarriage, he does not specify that. So it sounds like it doesn't matter whether the miscarriage was before the father died or after the father died. And the reason, says Rab Chaim, is because the whole point of this halacha, as the Gemara explains, is that the first rumor that the convert had died was unclear what had happened. That's why the people can't keep what they grabbed. But it's not because they were actually wrong, and in fact, he did have an heir who was alive. 
So if he had a son who was alive at that point and only died later, then there's a much more basic reason why they can't keep their possessions that they took. Because it wasn't theirs to take. It wasn't ownerless. So it must be, says the Rambam, that the case is where he did have a son, but the son predeceased him, and therefore there was no heir at the time that the convert died. As opposed to in the case of the miscarriage, says Rab Chaim, the Rambam doesn't care whether the miscarriage happened before the convert died or after, because in all cases, the fetus has no rights to the property. He's not an heir at all, which follows exactly Rava's halacha, that a fetus does not acquire objects, even if they come to him through his own father's inheritance. So you see from these two Rambams, the Rambam in Hilchus Mechira quotes explicitly Rava's halacha, and then in Hilchus Chiyu Matana, the careful reading of the Rambam indicates that he accepts lock, stock, and barrel totally what Rava said, that a fetus has no rights whatsoever to any possessions or objects. If so, says Rab Chaim, now we have the Rimigash's question on the Rambam. Why in Hilchus Nachlos Beis Hay does he quote the halacha that a fetus doesn't cut into the firstborn's portion? That seems obvious because the fetus can't acquire anything. So how would he cut into the firstborn's portion? Says Rab Chaim, the solution to this is, as he explained in the Rambam throughout, that even though a fetus cannot acquire anything practically, but that doesn't mean that he's not a Yoresh. He still has the status of a Yoresh because he's eventually going to acquire, even though at that moment he's unable to acquire anything. So this would mean that the Rambam read the whole Gemara in Baba Basra differently than Tosfos. He holds that when the Gemara says that the fetus doesn't cut into the firstborn's portion based on the Pasuk of the Yoldulo, it's following the position that a fetus has no ownership rights at all, which is Rava's position. And still we need a Pasuk because even though the fetus has no ownership rights, he's still considered a Yoresh and you would think that he cuts into the firstborn's property. So that's why we need a Pasuk to tell you that he doesn't even though Rava holds that a fetus has no ownership at all. So that explains why the Gemara has to paskin that a fetus doesn't cut into the portion of the firstborn, even though the Gemara holds that a fetus has no ownership at all, because they are two different things. And that explains why the Rambam also records both halachas in two different places, because both of them are necessary. And Tosus's reading of the Gemara, that the whole Pusik is only needed if you hold that a fetus does have ownership rights. So that's Tosus's overall approach, that he doesn't have this conceptual idea that there's any such thing as an heir who has no ownership. So therefore, he holds that if there's no ownership whatsoever, then the fetus is not an heir at all, and you don't need any pusik for it. So the Rambam and Tosus's way of making sense of this position in the Gemara and Baba Basra also follows their overall approaches, as Reb Chaim explained them. Now Reb Chaim has one last point, and he comes back to the Ravid to understand on which point does the Ravid disagree with the Rambam's approach. So he says that the Ravid agrees with the basic distinction of the Rambam, the key point that Reb Chaim has been developing, that a fetus has the status of a Yoresh, 
even though he doesn't have any financial ownership. And the Ravid too agrees with that. And the proof is because the Ravid's critique of the Rambam's halacha begins with the Ravid claiming that we hold Ubar Yeshlo In other words, because he holds that a fetus could acquire things, so that throws off the whole equation of the Rambam that the slaves could continue eating truma because of the other brothers. Because as the Ravid points out, once the fetus has a real ownership stake, so then the slaves cannot eat through the fetus's portion. But the Ravid's critique is based on the fact that he holds that in Ubar Yeshlo Zechia, the fetus could have a real ownership. The implication being that if you hold Ubar Einlo Zechia, that a fetus doesn't have ownership, which is what the Rambam holds, then the Ravid agrees that the outcome is going to be that the slaves could continue eating in the case where there's a fetus if there's older brothers. Now, as we saw, the Rambam's whole approach to this is based on this distinction that a fetus is a partial Yoresh. He has the status of a Yoresh without actually owning financially the estate. So if the Ravid only disagrees with this on a technicality, but he doesn't disagree with the essential approach of the Rambam, so Rab Chaim says the implication is that the Ravid too agrees that a fetus is a partial Yoresh, exactly as the Rambam said it. He just holds that because we hold Ubar Yesh Lo the fetus does have an ownership stake, so therefore the slaves cannot continue eating because the fetus is unable to feed them truma on his part. So again, according to Rab Chaim, the machlokas between the Rambam and the Ravid centers on the issue of whether a fetus has actual ownership or not, but they both agree to the conceptual idea Rab Chaim's developing that a fetus is a partial Yoresh. Now, the Ravid's proof that a fetus has ownership is because the Gemara says that a father could give his fetus child a gift. And the reasoning is, because a father feels particularly close to his child, even a fetus, so therefore he gives the gift fully. So from here, the Ravid deduces that obviously the fetus can take ownership because they're able to get this gift from their father. Now, Rab Chaim explains that the Rambam also, of course, agrees with that line in the Gemara, but he reads it differently. He understands that when the Gemara says that a father can give his fetus a gift... It means that the father can give the gift to the child when they're a fetus, but they only assume ownership of it after they're born. So long as they're a fetus, they do not acquire this object. And this view of the Rambam, he says in Hilchus Mechira, Perak Chavbeis Halacha Yud, where the Rambam writes that just as there's a halacha that ain adam makna davar you cannot sell something which has not come to the world. The object you're selling has to be in existence. So too, says the Rambam, there is a halacha that ain adam makna You cannot sell an object to a person who is not in the world. The buyer also has to be in existence. So based on that, says the Rambam, that a fetus cannot acquire an object because they're not considered bala olam, they are not in the world in order to take ownership of the object. So a person cannot acquire something to a fetus. But then the Rambam quotes the exception of a son. He says, If it was his son, then because the father feels so close to his son, so he does fully give the object to his son, and then it would work. So Rab Chaim points out that the Rambam brings this halacha not in the context of the halachas of fetuses, but in the context of the halachas 
of being makna davar shalobala olam, things which are not in existence. So the Rambam is indicating that the problem with a fetus taking ownership is that they're not in the world halachically. So based on that, if the father gives the object to the fetus, even though the father fully gave it to the fetus, they can only assume ownership once they're born. So that's where Rab Chaim gets this view that the Rambam holds that even though there's an exception, that a father could give something to his child when they're a fetus, but that just means that he gives it to them when they're a fetus and then they assume ownership after they're born. That's based on the context of these halachas that a person has to be in the world in order to take ownership of something. But the Raivit, on the other hand, reads this whole issue as something which is relevant to fetuses. It's not in the context of broader halachas of davar shalobala olam. And since it's relevant to a fetus, so when the Gemara makes an exception that a father could give his fetus an object, then it means that as soon as the father gives it, the fetus already acquires it. And that's where the Raivit disagrees with the Rambam's approach, that he holds there is such a concept of a fetus owning things, and therefore, when it comes to Yerusha, so that's an even stronger form of ownership because it happens automatically when the father dies. So in that case, the Ravid says that the fetus does have ownership in the slaves and therefore they can no longer eat truma. So the machlokis between the Rambam and the Ravid centers on this issue of whether there is a concept of a fetus actually having ownership or not, and that would affect whether the slaves can eat truma. So that's Reb Chaim's piece. It's a very long and difficult piece. So if you made it this far, give yourself a pat on the back. Uh, even though it's a fairly long piece, there's really only one conceptual point that Rab Chaim is drilling home the whole time. And that is that according to the Rambam and the Raivid, a fetus is considered a partial Yoresh. He does have the status of a Yoresh because when he's born, he's going to assume ownership, but he does not have an actual financial ownership stake. So this is a big Chiddush when it comes to the concept of Yerusha, that someone could be an heir without actually owning the estate. And the implication of Rab Chaim's discussion when he applies this to the different Gemaras is that Tosos disagrees with this and holds that it's the same thing. To be a Yoresh, you have to have some ownership. Now, there's an interesting contrast with Rab Chaim's idea with Rab Meir Simchan or Sameach. He discusses this Rambam in Hilchus Nachlos, Perak Aleph, Halach Yid Gimel, which is the Rambam that Rab Chaim also quoted about a non-viable primi, and the Rambam holds that a nafel is still a Yoresh. So in the midst of that discussion, Rab Meir Simcha comes to this Rambam, and he brings up a lot of the same points as Rab Chaim, and in fact, he gives almost the same approach to explaining the Rambam, but he totally removes Rab Chaim's conceptual distinction that a fetus is a partial Yoresh, and instead, Rab Meir Simcha says almost the same explanation in much more technical terms. So he explains that an Ubar is a Yoresh, in other words, the fetus does have ownership like the Ravid holds, but the Rambam holds that this is purely an issue of Kenyan Kaspo. That once the Torah said that a fetus cannot feed his slaves truma, that means he does not meet the criteria of Kenyan Kaspo. And since the whole halacha of truma depends on Kenyan Kaspo, so if the fetus does not meet Kenyan Kaspo, then he also won't block the slaves from eating truma, even though he does own them. So Reb Meir Simcha uses very much the same approach as Reb Chaim, that truma is unique because it depends on Kenyan Kaspo, but he doesn't introduce the idea that a fetus 
is a yoresh without having ownership stake. He just assumes that a fetus is a regular yoresh. The fetus does have ownership of the slaves, but that still doesn't affect the truma because it's not Kenyan Kaspo, and therefore the slaves can't eat because of the fetus, and the fetus also doesn't block them from eating. So Rab Meir Simcha offers basically the same approach, but within the standard way of understanding Yerusha, that it involves actual ownership. But then Rab Meir Simcha raises a problem because according to his approach, what happens in a case where two people jointly own the slave? One of them is a Yisrael, one of them is a Kohen, and then the Yisrael partner dies, but his wife is pregnant with a fetus. So now you have joint ownership of a slave. One of the partners is a Kohen and one of the partners is a Yisrael fetus. So according to Rabbi Meir Simcha, the fetus should not affect the slaves eating truma, and this slave should be able to eat truma, which is very strange to say. Now, according to Rab Chaim, obviously that's not a problem because Rab Chaim holds that the fetus is a Yoresh. He just doesn't have ownership. But the fact that there is a partner who is a Yisrael that has a status of a Yoresh on this slave is going to block him from eating truma. So this question is only according to Rab Meir Simcha's approach. Rab Meir Simcha's answer is that the reason why the slave cannot eat truma in this strange case is because since he didn't start eating truma before the Yisrael master died, so he cannot begin eating truma once there's a fetus. The case of the Rambam where the slaves continue eating truma with a fetus is that they continue eating truma because they belong to a Kohen and there are older brothers, so they continue eating truma despite there being a fetus. But the slaves cannot begin eating truma because they're owned by a fetus. So Rabbi Meir Simcha makes a distinction between continuing eating truma and beginning eating truma. And as we pointed out, Rab Chaim has a more elegant resolution to this case. Now, in the back of the Or Olam edition of Kedush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, they quote from Reb Leib Lopian, who was the son of the Mashkiach Reb Elia Lopian, and he was a Rosh Hashiv in Gateshead, that he pointed out that Reb Chaim and Reb Meir Simcha are going to have a difference in a case where there are, again, two partners who own the slave, but they're both Kohanim. So in that case, if one of the partners dies and leaves his wife pregnant with a fetus, so that's going to be a distinction between the Orsameach and Rab Chaim, whether the slaves can continue eating. According to the Orsameach, they can continue eating because they already began eating when both masters were alive because they were both Kohanim. So since these slaves are already eating, they can continue eating even though there's a fetus. But according to Rab Chaim, that it depends on whether the fetus is an equal Yoresh to the other owners. So then only in the case where the other owners are his brothers and he's not going to displace them, then the slaves can continue eating. But in this case where the other owner is a partner, so obviously the fetus is much more of an heir to the partner who died than the other partner. So then the fact that there's a fetus would prohibit the slaves from continuing to eat truma. So as we saw, Reb Meir Simcha doesn't work with Reb Chaim's distinction about a fetus's status as a Yoresh. But the Reb Elchanan Wasserman in his Kovit Sa'aris on Yavamos and Simon Mem, so he does quote this idea from Reb Chaim, which he heard. He didn't read it in the Sefer. But he heard it directly from Rav Chaim. And also Rav Ruven Katz, who is the Rav of Petach Tikva, in his Degel Ruven, Chelek Besim and Chavvav. So he uses Rav Chaim to answer a major question from the Ktsos and Simon Reish Vav, Sifkat and Aleph. But that would take us a little too far afield to go through that right now. 
And finally, it's just worth mentioning one last source, which is Rab Isser Zalman Meltzer, who is another student of Rab Chaim, in his Eben Ha'ezal and Hilchus Chil Matana, Perk Beis Halacha Yud Ches. So that's the Rambam that Rab Chaim discussed about a convert who dies without heirs and the people plunder his estate. So at the end of that piece, Rab Isser Zalman also quotes the Rambam that we've been dealing with in Hilchus Trumos. And he also suggests that an explanation for the Rambam, why he disagrees with the Raivid, is that he holds that even though a father could gift things to his fetus, but the fetus will only acquire them after he's born. And he connects this with the Rambam, who brings up that halacha in the context of Davar Shalom Bala So he goes through the same discussion as Rab Chaim, but he's less sure whether that's proof positive that according to the Rambam, a fetus can only acquire things after they're born.